Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joel Chasnoff. Today, I'm joined by comedian Joel Chasnoff. Joel is a stand-up comedian, a former IDF soldier, and the author of several books, including the newly released Israel 201. Thank you. Boker Tov, everyone. Hey. Joel Chasnoff is a household name in shuls all over the U.S. and Canada. He's performed at more than 1,500 Jewish events in 10 different countries, from the Melbourne Comedy Festival in Australia, all the way to Israeli late-night TV. You fall in love with everything Israel when you're 17 years old and you go for the first time. What's the first thing you notice when you get off the plane? It's the Israeli soldiers. I mean, because they're 18 years old. They're one year older than I am. I'm 17, they're 18, and yet they're so different. They have Uzi machine guns and berets and forearms like bricks. And then there's me, slathered in sunscreen, wearing a fanny pack, stuffed with lactose pills. Who would you rather be? His comedy is clever, clean, and positive. And in Joel's words, it's hip, wholesome stuff about the joys and oys of Jewish life. As a comedian and public speaker, Joel is in a unique position to teach techniques for establishing a connection with the audience right from the start, so they'll want to follow you where you want them to go. Techniques for appearing confident and in control on stage, so the audience will trust you and be more likely to follow you. And the power of vulnerability, which can make people feel less alone and isolated when they can see themselves in you. We also talk about how to be relatable and how to create intimacy between speaker and audience. This interview is like a masterclass on audience engagement and attention management. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with comedian Joel Chasnoff. Uh, well, let me uh, begin by wishing you a happy birthday. Toda Raba. You're eight days older than I am. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Big so, year for both of us. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. It said that on your Wikipedia entry, that, that's where I get my... Uh, <laughs> all my Always uh, the highest level of scrutiny. Yeah, yeah accurate. Uh, for research accurate. and verification, yes. Right. You probably wrote it, right? <laughs> I did not, actually. I don't know how it got there, but it's been it's been a long time. So so my question is, is that uh, it said that you uh, you gave a shot at stand-up, uh, and then you dropped it, and then you moved to Israel, and then and you came back to it. And, and then all of a sudden, you find yourself working for uh, opening for Jon Stewart. Like, walk me through that journey. How did, how did that, uh, how did you go from stand-up dropout to? Sure. Look, during college, I knew I wanted to serve in the Israeli army, but I, it was scared too. It was a, that would be a big life move, a huge transition. My parents didn't want me to, and I knew I wanted to do stand-up. So I moved to New York and kind of tried stand-up, but the whole time I was bugged by this desire to go serve in the IDF. And so my, the way I approached the standup was not very serious. It was, uh, I don't want to swear, but like a half, half a try, not the full try. Yeah. After I got back from the army and got the IDF out of my system, I was able to really pursue it seriously. And so I came back to the U.S. after serving in the army in Israel, began doing the whole open mic thing, finding other places to perform. And where were you? And at opportunities that time? came. Were you in New After York? Israel? Yeah. At first it was Chicago. It was three years in Chicago doing some second city and improv Olympic training and and working my way into the Jewish world as well. Very quickly I found that the Jewish world was a good spot for my stand-up because my humor is 
really has that Jewish angle that's not just self-hating, that's what a lot of Jewish comics do, but really is based on growing up in a Jewish home, having a Jewish life, and being proud of it, but also finding the absurdities in it. That, that's what my comedy is. Yeah. And so quickly, I kind of discovered that that was my niche. Was that was that when you, your first shot at stand up when you were in New York, in New York? Were you doing that also? Was that was that your no favorite? first shot of stand up was pretty much your cookie cutter template of what a comedian would do: going to terrible open mics in awful locations, uh, waiting in line for a spot to audition at the comic strip, and then you know doing your three minutes being told you didn't pass. I mean, it was, it was brutal. And, but there was no Jewish angle. It was, it was, and I think also that's why it didn't work is I was doing the comedy that I thought you were supposed to do to pass into a club as opposed to what really spoke to me as a person. So then you come back from Israel, you're what, 24? Come back from Israel at that point, 25. Wow. And you have this, this army experience behind you. And have the army behind me and a little wiser, a little more mature. Yeah, and then and then you start kind of mining yourself for your for your Jewish material. Well, a few things happened. I still did the open mic thing and tried to get what you might call mainstream secular performances at clubs in the U.S. and and did some and did and got opportunities and they they went well. But I also made some connections in the Jewish world and they invited me to perform. And those shows just seemed to flow so much better. I could talk about the things that really were important to me. I was connecting with the audience on a visceral level, not just making them laugh, but sharing a story. And I really enjoyed that a lot more. And also from a business opportunity, there was, you know, Jews talk. And if a show went well, they would recommend me somewhere else. Whereas in the club scene, you're literally just a part of this big ocean of comedians. And a lot of people are interchangeable. So I couldn't stand out as much. So the right. Jewish world really made sense. Right. It's a, it's a feeding frenzy. I remember I, I did the open mic circuit in New York City. In oh, 19, so you know. Yeah, in 19, it was 97 to 99. And, uh, you know, New York's uh, oversaturated. So the, there's no work there. You know, you're just basically open micing and you have to go out to Jersey or, you know, Long Island or places like that to work. And um, it was tough. It was, t I remember, you know, and, and it's... Uh, so, so let me ask you when when you decided to to kind of kind of funnel towards the Jewish world for your for your work, um, did you did you feel like you were missing out on like the opportunity to like get on the Tonight Show or something like that? Did you did you feel that like was it was that part of your aspiration as being a comic? Look, that's a great question. I think everyone who goes into comedy has the aspiration of being on the Tonight Show, one of those other late night shows, TV spots. And there was certainly a part of me that was like, how could I leverage this or how could I create a five minute bit from what I do that could actually work on that? The older I've gotten, it's become far less important to me to the point where now it's not important at all. But at the beginning, sure, there was definitely that competition of like, okay, on the one hand, I have audiences who really appreciate what I do and that I connect with. But on the other hand, all of the mainstream credit is not in doing Temple Bethel, it's in doing the Tonight Show and these other, you know, sort of places. So how do I navigate those conflicting feelings? And I think mostly it was just with time. Um, I, I think if I had really decided I'm going to create a set that can work in a, you know, on a Tonight Show and go out onto, into the clubs every night. But, you know, that's the other thing I discovered. It's not just about having a five-minute set that works on TV. 
it's it's about being part of the scene and being out there night after night and you know just in the vibe of it and i didn't have the love for going out into clubs night after night and there are some comedians who they love that and it's the highlight of their day is going out to the open mics going out to the clubs at night that was never me i always kind of did it begrudgingly not with a full heart and i think that's a sign too you have to listen to your feelings and that will guide you yeah a lot of waiting around and some are happy to do it i wasn't yeah <laughs> so. yeah um so it's interesting to me that you describe yourself as having a bug to go to the army most people have a bug to do stand-up and that bug you know overwhelms every other bug that you might have it, it's right. interesting to me that that your primary bug was the army and your secondary bug was was stand-up yeah you know from i think the age of 15 16 on i kind of got obsessed with the idf and part of it was the teen tour I went on when I was 17 with Camp Ramada Israel. Part of it was hosting exchange students during high school. And the Gulf War in 19, I think it was 91, the first Gulf War, where Israel was hit by Scud missiles. Like all these things together, it really, look, I'm a comedian, but I'm a very serious guy, sometimes to the disappointment of people. And I think a lot of comedians are. We, we tend to think a lot, brood. And... On a very serious level, I feel that if we're going to call Israel the homeland and our homeland, then we shouldn't do something too. And there was also the cool factor. Like, I really love the idea that these 18-year-old Israelis were not going off to college and joining frats and partying, but were putting their lives on the line for a mission that was so much more important than any of that. And it just it never left me. I, I always felt that I wanted to do this, and more importantly, that I would regret it if I didn't. And mm -hmm. I get emails from kids now in you know 18, 19, saying, I'm thinking about joining the IDF. What do you recommend? And the one piece of advice I tell them is if you feel your life will always have something missing if you don't do it, then you should do it. But if you're kind of toying with the idea and you're not sure, then don't, because it's too hard and you won't enjoy it. But you know, I felt my life would be empty if I didn't do it. And that's ultimately why I decided to go. Uh, and how many years were you there? Well, the the time in the army itself was one year because I was 24 when I actually mm -hmm. went in and they scaled back your service from three years to two to one, depending on your age. And one year was the perfect amount of time. You know, I, I served with 18 year old Israelis, which is what I wanted. I wanted to be with the real soldiers. I went to Lebanon, which was important to me to serve in a combat role, got a taste of it, but didn't spend three years. Three years is an enormous amount of time. And now it's actually less. Two years, eight months is what guys do. But even that is a long time. And one year at the age of 24 was plenty. Yeah. How was the training? How did you find that? Physically, the training was okay and i handled it um i was in tanks where the physical training is not as difficult as infantry it was the mental side that was extremely hard and different from anything else i had known whether it was sleeping in a tank which is a, a tin you know a metal box at night you're freezing in the golan or just not sleeping at all um being you know being bossed around by commanders 24 hours a day like that's hard to turn over your freedom so for me that was much more difficult than the the physical training. I spent a lot of time trying to get in shape and running, and it turned out that was less relevant than just the the shock of being a 24-year-old American in a system set up for 18-year-old Israelis. Um, that, to me, was the, the biggest conflict and the difficulty. 
Wow. So, so, okay. So take me back to, uh, so you're, you're back home now, 25 years old and, um, right. you're doing stand up, uh, finding your niche in the Jewish area. And how did, how did John Stewart come along? You know, by the, what I found in life in general, the older I get is most things that come along, just come along that the more I always tried to engineer things, the less it worked. And just about everything good that I do have in my life came along as we'd say in Hebrew slang, the fuchs by chance. Um, and so John Stewart, how'd that come along? Uh, this was, it was actually a Hillel gig. There was the Hillel at the University of Pittsburgh, decided to have this huge weekend of events. And the cornerstone was this stand-up show uh, where John Stewart was going to headline, but they wanted an opener and someone who had like sort of a Yiddish-y, Yiddishkeit Jewish content. And the director of the Hillel reached out to me and and flew me out to Pittsburgh to be the opener at this three thousand person event um, wow. in, in Pittsburgh, and it was and it was great. I mean, it was uh, one of I still look back on it as you know shows blend together over the years, but that's one I'll always remember. That's amazing. Yeah, I saw him uh, do stand up at NYU. This must have been nineteen ninety six or ninety seven. Same something. time period, and it's back when he would do that when he would still go to colleges. And yeah, yeah. Um, so. Uh, tell me some of your inspiration uh, in comedy. Uh, you know, who, who do you look up to? Who do you sure. grow up admiring? Yeah, I mean, it's changed. When I was younger, it was who, and now it's what. So when I was younger, I really looked up. To, I love Steve Martin. Like, I remember I grew up in Evanston, Illinois. I would ride my bike to the Evanston Public Library and check out a record of his comedy and listen to it. And if you're under 30, there are many things in that sentence you might not know exist. Re you know, records, libraries bikes uh but uh I, I would listen to his album over and over and he was just silly and goofy and i i loved him for it he was also on the muppet show and so i was exposed to him at a young age and he was he will always was and always is will be my favorite comedian and a lot of other comedians say the same thing steve martin inspired a lot of people uh, in my yeah. generation now it's more what do i look up to the type of comedy and i like comedy that's efficiently written where the joke is funny on paper, where you don't need to make a silly face or move your body in a way for it to be funny. So I really love well-crafted, clever, efficient humor. And that's everyone from Jim Gaffigan to Dave Attell and Jeffrey Ross. Like th those guys are just have excellent writing and that's what I'm attracted to. Economy of words. Economy like of words, exactly. Yeah, I think they also call them uh, math jokes. Do they call them? They mm, I've never heard that term. What do you mean? Yeah, it, it's it's... There's nothing that needs to be added to it. it it's just an equation. It's just it's just something mm. that, that just yeah. simply works. You know, there, there doesn't need any any buffering or any anything supporting it. It's just it's just it's just an equation. That's a that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where I heard that term. But uh, so so tell me about your how your style. Don't evolved. worry, podcasters. We're just thinking. That's that silence <laughs> there. <laughs> I mean, listeners. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your style, how 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 you started out and how you evolved, evolved over the years. Yeah. I mean, the style starting out was probably what every comedian style is at the beginning, just imitating who you liked. So throwing yeah. in a little bit of Steve Martin here and Robin Williams there and Jerry Seinfeld there. But eventually, the more you start doing it, the more, look, you get confident. And once you're confident, once you know you can get laughs, then you can relax. You can stop trying so hard. And your style sort of takes care of itself like you should never try to have a style it's more it's more like when it starts to feel right and comfortable oh that's my style it's just being a little bit of a heightened version of myself on stage there's nothing 
added on. And there are comedians who their whole style is to turn it up a bit, whether it's, you know, Dice Clay or, uh, you know, Gallagher. Those guys are a heightened, you know, a, a character. Um, but that was never me. It was just being being me with a little bit of a boost, a little bit extra. So in the beginning, it's more scatter shots, just throwing stuff against the wall, seeing what works. I mean, in the beginning, it's so much fear. You know, it's it's the heart literally, you know, pounding and nausea before going on stage that you just want to survive and not be hated. And so you're doing in any, every moment what you can to survive. But I think that when the more you do it and the more you say, oh, look, I'm getting laughs. I don't need to try so hard. You fall into the style that suits you. Yeah. How long did it take did it take you to shake off that that fear and uh, develop, a, 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 let's say, a cruising altitude of confidence? Yeah, I mean, look, the heart still patters a little bit harder before a show, but there's not that fear of death that I used to have. Probably, I mean, at, at least six years and maybe closer to eight, you know, before I could really know that I belonged doing it. Wow. Which is a long time when you think yeah, about it. Yeah, that's a really long time. People don't get it. I remember for me, I think it was about two years of going doing open mics four or five nights a week until I finally felt I could do this. You know, and, and then I and then you're right. Then you just have to learn your your style and actually. You know, but that's why so many drop out, you know, like the, the so much about comedy, whether it's improv or stand up, it's just about sticking around. And if you just stick around and keep trying to get better, that's the best advice. You know, you can take classes, you can read books. But at the, at the end of the day, if you just keep trying to get better and watch other comedians and see what you react to, because that what you like usually indicates what you want to do yourself. That's the best school you can. And 90% of your classmates will drop out. So you don't have to worry about rising to the top. Like most people will just leave. <laughs> it's just too hard. Yeah. Yeah. You have to really want it. People, people don't get that. Absolutely. Um, so, so talk to me a little bit about, um, so, so you, you admired C. Martin and, and, uh, kind of the zaniness. And totally. so how did you, how did you go about, did you write? Did you just try things on stage? What was the, what was your approach? You know, it's, it's, it, it's various things. Some, we've all had those moments when golden ideas just sort of come to you and you don't know where they came from and they become the best jokes in your act. And others, it was literally sitting down with notebook and paper and saying, I know there's something funny about this concept and I don't know what it is and experimenting and trying. And then often the often the real killer punchline will come on stage in the moment, almost as an improv, but it's been brewing in your brain behind the scenes for a while. But it has to be a mix um, of rigorous sitting down and treating it like a job and being open to inspiration and not throwing anything away. You know, Mitch Hedberg had this great joke that, uh, if I think of a great joke and I have a pen and paper, I write it down. But if I don't have a pen and paper, I tell myself it wasn't that great of a joke. Like he, you, it, the point being that if you don't write it down, you're not going to remember it. And uh, you have to keep track of, of the things that are even remotely possible to be mm -hmm. turned into jokes. Let me ask you, did you, uh, did you tend to work clean? In the beginning or were you in the uh, beginning no in the beginning i kind of thought i wasn't dirty by no means was i ever filthy um you know as a jewish boy i went to you know day school like there were certain lines i just never felt comfortable crossing but in the beginning i actually thought it was funnier to swear and funnier to to be kind of well, as we say in hebrew gas you know rude um but i think that was insecurity for me now i am totally clean and i have been at least um i sound like some sort of recovering alcoholic but i've been <laughs> totally clean for at least probably 12 to 15 years. And I think it's funnier. Like I see it as a challenge 
that when you can be completely clean and get people to laugh, and I'll tell you this, audience members love it too. A lot of audience members have a preconceived notion of what comedy is. Um, one of the best comments I get after a show is I wasn't planning to laugh. I usually don't like stand up, but I actually did laugh because I think uh, a lot of people are put off by the filthiness that they see so often. And that when they see a comedian who can be clean for an hour, uh, it's it's like a ray of sunshine shining down upon them. Yeah. But um, it makes you funnier, too. It forces you to be more clever. Um, so tell me about the hour, because uh, I know people's attention spans are are down these days. And, and it's funny. They, yeah, there's fatigue. You know, people just even though when they're being entertained and they're having a good time, there's, there's a certain fatigue that sets in. Um, how do you how do you t tell me your view on that? Yeah, look, it, it depends on the context of what else is going on. So if I'm performing at an event where there's a dinner and speeches and a slideshow, then I will say the max we should have is 30 minutes. Doesn't matter how funny it is. People will not be able to tune in for more than that. Um, I do a show every year on Christmas in New York, Christmas for the Jews, which happened, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, even that, I had a number of really great comics on the bill, but I made sure it was an hour and 15 minutes, the whole show, because like you said, doesn't matter how good of a time they're having people just nowadays more than ever tune out. So yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious of it. And, uh, and, and yeah, the attention span factor is, is important to take into account, but I, yeah, but I also think if you can be funny enough that people will go along with you, they won't need to go on their phones. Although I will say there's always that one audience member who from the time you're up there is texting and I can, doesn't matter if 99% of the crowd is not. I can always find that one person who's scrolling and kind of eats at me. Well, do, you, do you ever address it head on or? You know, I don't. It's not in my, like, it's not my style and personality to call people out. Although I do think that if I just came up with the right line, you know, I should write the same way you write jokes. You need to write lines to deal with these situations, whether it's a glass falling and breaking or someone texting during the show, I should probably write, script a few lines and have them ready because I, I'm usually not so comfortable pointing it out, but I should. Right. And, you know, it's interesting to me that movies, for some reason, movies, the length is increasing. It's Is it? I didn't. Yeah. Okay. Tell me yeah, about they, that because I don't know. Funny. It's about two and a half hours is like the average. Like What? What yeah. movies are you talking about besides like Oppenheimer uh, and Burbank? Like, you know, any, uh, you know, James Bond or Mission Impossible or these, you know, like lots of movies, the average length is is well over two hours. Wow. And uh, and I'm just wondering if it's possible. I mean, because you're talking about cut after cut after cut. Of, there's so right. much going on. But I'm wondering if it's possible for one person to hold an audience attention span for, for, for that long. I mean, you know, Cosby used to be able to do, you know, two and a half hours, you know, right. on stage sitting down. And I don't know if he'd be able to do it today anymore. I just don't Look, know. I think at the end of the day, if it were engaging enough and funny enough, yeah, you, you probably could. But I think the bar is a lot higher. Like there's so much more competition, like literally in their pocket. So it would have to be really... It would have to be really, really compelling and engaging for that two and a half hours. Yeah. So tell me how you how you open. How, how do you come in and just grab them right from the beginning and, you know, don't give them a chance to to get distracted or anything? What, what's yeah, you know, it's a it's a great question, because in the early days, that was my theory is come in and like pound them over the head with a great one liner so that they buy in immediately. And my my theory on that has actually changed. I now feel that the first 30 seconds the most important thing to do is to connect with them on a human level. And it doesn't matter if you're not funny, but you have to be a real human being in the moment. You can't sound scripted or fake, and you have to somehow 
connect with them and then they'll go along with you. So I've actually, I've changed my approach to opening now. It used to be quick joke out of the hat immediately. And now it's much more about how can I connect with these people on something that they care about and show them I'm actually real and that we're in this together, even if I don't what, get a laugh. What led you to that realization? I think uh, I'm kind of riffing here because I've never thought about it, but I think it was the idea that I would tell these big jokes at the beginning and I would get a laugh and yet I didn't really feel like I had a relationship with the audience. Like I was showing them funny things to get the reaction I wanted, but they weren't really holding my hand and going with me on a path. And I think a great stand-up show is something where you're kind of walking with the audience on a trail and discovering things together. And if I wanted them to go on that journey with me, it couldn't just be um, showing them, you know, making them laugh with canned, prepared jokes. It had to be it, it, like a conversation with a person. You know, you're if you're going to have spend an hour with a person and it's going to be a good hour, the conversation has to be really real. And so you have to warm up to it. And um, I just discovered I could get more intimacy and more connection with the audience that way. So what? tell me some of the things that you do to, to achieve that. I pay a lot of, I get, I get there early now. And so in, if there's a show, I don't just show up 15 minutes ahead of time. Like I'll get there and before anyone else is scheduled to arrive. And most of my shows now are for planned fundraisers and big events where there's a few hundred people coming and in a ballroom or, you know, so like there's, it's an event, it's not a comedy club, but I'll get there early. I'll, I'll spend some time researching about the Jewish organization or their mission. I'll listen to what people are talking about. I'll pay attention. Usually you'll get just some great nuggets listening to, you know, the conversations people are having ahead of time, or there'll be a speech before I go on. And if there, if you can just pick up on one or two things that you can relate to and then mention that and loop back to it, it shows that you're not just a scripted performer, but you're actually paying attention to them and that you get what they're all about. And that makes, I mean, that makes all the difference. So I just I yeah. pay a lot more attention to them. And that's the other big thing is I think when you start out doing stand-up, it's all about me. Like, am I funny? And then the the longer you go along, you I've realized it's take the focus off that. Give them a good time. Make this show about giving them a good time and them being happy. And you also get less nervous too, because now you have like a positive mission as opposed to a self-centered one. Yeah. Um, I saw some someone said somewhere that the show begins you know, when, when you enter the room, not, not when you get on stage, but when you're mm -hmm. in the room, just kind of, you know, that, that there, there's things going on way before you ever get on stage. For that, sure. Yeah. Um, so interesting. So, um, you don't strike me as a, and don't take this the wrong way. But, but <laughs> I can't a, wait to see what's coming next. <laughs> a laugh per minute type of guy, meaning, meaning that you don't necessarily feel uh, the need to do right. that, you know, that, that, uh, you know, regimented, you know, okay, it's been, you know, eight seconds, it's the last laugh. I mean, right. obviously there, there's a, an attention to that, but, but you don't strike me as that being that kind of person. You're, you're, you're more, you're, you, you seem free to be able to explore and to expand and to, to have right. points with you. Where, where did you develop that freedom from? Where did you feel that? Well, first of all, I think you're right. And uh, at a show I did recently, someone came up to me and said, you know, I feel like you're not just a comedian, but you're also, there's kind of an educator in you. And, and I think that's very much that's on point with who I want to be. Um, I love the idea of teaching and 
kind of conveying certain values. And it took me a while to get used to it because there will be times on stage where there's probably a minute, like a full 60 seconds or more where there aren't laughs. And, you know, generally in stand-up, you do want to have that laugh per 20 seconds or whatever. So it, it, a lot of it was just confidence that like, you know what, I know I can go a minute now just talking about something meaningful because there will be a payoff and I know that the laugh is coming or that I've earned it with other laughs that came before. I don't think you can go on stage and have three minutes of intimacy with no laughs at all at the beginning, but you can earn it. And uh, um, I also I also feel that audiences like that. I think audiences want more than just mechanical, you know, instinctive laughs. There, there's some comedians who their writing is so clever that all they have to do is say it and the audience laughs and they've got it down to a science. But I like having that um, that conversation with them. But it took a while because you do have to give up that fear of them sitting there thinking, oh, my God, he hasn't made me laugh in a minute. Is he even funny at all? So it, a lot of it is just confidence. Yeah. Um, I saw a clip of you. It was very funny. It was uh, it was a conference. I'm trying to remember. Uh, <laughs> OK. Uh, I forget what it's called. It, it was. Um, let me see if I can pull it up here. It was the, um, uh, did, uh, I forget the name of the conference. It was, it was. Um, oh, yeah, was, yeah. I think in uh, California with, uh, tell, for, you, a, tell me the joke. So, well, well, there were, you remember? Jokes, but they, they were great. But my, my main point was, is that you opened and you said Boker Tove. And I'm mm. like, oh, this is the morning. The lights are on. You know, right. this, this is hard. You know, the, I, I remember. You yeah, know, comedy in the morning. <laughs> Oh my gosh! So how do you you know? It, it's it's obviously different. I mean, it's, there's a totally different vibe. Um, how do you approach comedy in the morning as opposed to comedy at the night, at night with the lights off and the intimacy and you know people packed together? I mean, this there's like an auditorium. You yeah, know, I mean, look, I, I, even when I do a show at night, I like to have the lights on. I don't like spotlights. I like the idea that we're all kind of in the space together. Um, and not comedian, and then a wall, and then the audience. So you know, I don't mind the boat the the Boker Tov show. I don't mind a morning show for a conference. You know, my feeling is if they're there for a conference, they're there for a reason. There's something they all care about. Otherwise, they wouldn't have come together. And whatever it is they all care about, let's tap into that. And this this was the one I'm thinking about, if I'm correct, is it was a conference about Israel and like, where's Israel education going? And I was sort of kicking things off with some comedy. And Boker Tov would be an appropriate way to do it, also to tap into the, her whole relationship with Israel. So whatever whatever reason people are there for, um, that, that is, that guides me into like how to craft the show and the opening. And that's also why I don't enjoy the club comedy so much because club comedy, they're there to laugh and that's good, but I like there to be a deeper meaning as well. Yeah. So, um, you mentioned that you like to be considered not just a, a comedian, a mechanical comedian, but also, I guess, someone who makes you think and who teaches you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were a couple reviews on your, on your reel that I, that I watched <laughs> on your site. Okay. Um, and and the ones th they said exactly that they said uh, one of them was he definitely held my attention and the humor was great. Uh, I learned a lot today. He has a very good sense of humor, and he made us laugh and he made us think. Um, and is that something that you specifically aim for? Is that is that or is that more of a reflection on their part or is that intentional? Are you are you really trying? Yeah, to I think it's I think it's like style, which we talked about before. I don't sit down and think, how can I craft a joke that is going to make people think and learn something? But the more comfortable you get just being yourself, the more you allow your true personality to come out. And a big part of that for me is just the the teaching aspect and the, like I said, the taking on the journey. So I think it's 
it's something that they are saying, but I'm happy to hear it. And it's a product of just being comfortable enough to to go slowly and not just feel you need to tell a joke, but to tell to share your point of view and why this matters to you. Um, I mean, especially now in post-October 7th Israel, there's no way to do comedy about life in Israel without acknowledging that Israel is different and that we're going through a challenging time. And when I first started performing after October 7th, I was, you know, I was thinking like, oh, how do I, there's this elephant in the room. And then I realized the elephant in the room is the key to solving the, the challenge, not to pretend it's not there, but to say, wow, to actually go up on stage and acknowledge this is different. This is a little bit hard talking about Israel, but here's why I think we still can. And then once you've acknowledged that, it all becomes easier. I'm very big now into breaking the fourth wall. And that's a big change at the beginning of the career. It was audience there, me here. Uh, but now I will. I love going meta. I love talking about how we're talking about this now <laughs> or acknowledging the realities of that of the space that we're in. Um, and I, I just think it bonds you to the audience uh, so much more. I'm into that bond. How are you dealing with the the issue? How, how are you dealing with October 7th? Well, I, I remind, I tell audiences, you know, from the stage, from the get-go, like, it's okay to laugh, that in Israel, humor is a big part of the coping experience right now, whether it's shows like Eretz Nehederet, like the sort of SNL of Israel, or social media posts that people are passing around, not making fun of what happened, but sort of poking fun at the absurdity of Israeliness and Israeli life and how Israelis act in this kind of situation. And that humor is essential. And just because we're laughing now for an hour does not mean that we're forgetting about all the horrible aspects. But look, we got to celebrate who we are too. And once you just sort of touch on a few of those points at the beginning, I think it relaxes people. Uh, it shows them that like, yeah, this is okay. Uh, there's, there's no guilt if we're laughing for a, a little while. So yeah. it does, but it does have to be addressed. It can't be let's ignore October 7th for an hour. It's let's acknowledge what happened and see why that's still relevant for us to be together in a room like this. Do you address it head on at all in terms of the humor? Is there any humor? Yeah, I don't have jokes about, you know, hostages or Gaza. Like I maybe at some point I would, but for now it's more just about life in Israel from my point of view, having been in the army myself, having had kids go through the army, like that that touches on it enough without touching on it, you know, the completely. Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit of, a little bit about your book. You wrote a co-wrote a book this year with uh with Benji Lovett. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. The book is called Israel 201. And the whole idea is that it's the 201 and not the 101. You know, Benji and I wanted to write a book that would come out in Israel's 75th anniversary year. So we took 75 aspects of Israeli life that people typically do not talk about. So usually books about Israel are about conflict, the occupation, the green line, wars, whose land belongs to who, all that. We said, well, this book is not going to be that. Instead, it's about cats and embarrassing Hebrew mistakes that new immigrants make and ethics in the Israeli army. There's a lot of humor in it, but there's also quite a few serious chapters in there. Um, a number of chapters talk about Israel's Arab population. You know, a lot of people don't realize 22% of Israelis, Israeli citizens are Arab. And so we looked at their communities as well. And the whole idea was to give people a deeper, more expansive look at what it's really like to live in Israel and to be Israeli. And even though it came out before October 7th, I mean, I, I really feel like so much of what's in there is relevant, whether it's explaining how government is often dysfunctional, the battles between religious and non-religious, um, and just the sort of the 
you know, the hubris of the Israeli army. On the one hand, the army is the most respected institution in Israel, but that it can also forget so it can get so hung up on how good and strong it is that it can not take seriously some of the threats from the outside. And all this was in the book. And lo and behold, in October 7th, a lot of this did play out. So I think it's relevant, even though Israel in many ways has changed. Mm -hmm. um, so I read a, a Times of Israel uh, interview with you guys, oh, uh, yeah. both you and Benji. And uh, so you you said that you consider yourselves educators. Um, and mm -hmm. so what I'm curious about is that how, how do you... People perceive you as a comedian, so so you're going on a book tour with Benji, and you're doing these these workshops, um, right. and people expect you to be funny, um, but sometimes you have substance that's not necessarily funny, but but you right. know some serious stuff. How do you how do you balance that, being the comedian and also being an educator? Yeah, I mean, look, the comedy show itself is usually comedy, uh, but when we do some of these extra workshops, uh, they can be completely different. I think sometimes though that. Uh, there's a, you know, funny doesn't just have to mean jokes and laughs. It can also just be communicating things in a way that's easy and understandable and, and lighthearted. And I think a lot of Israel education, one of the problems with it is that it's been very serious, very rigorous, a little overbearing and overwhelming. And Benji and I try to bring an easiness to it where we can make difficult concepts fun to grapple with, easy to understand, um, and just a little more straightforward. And it's, it's gone well. And I think people also, if they've seen the stand-up show first, they're more likely to pay attention to your other work because they like you and they know that they want to hang out. Look, I think comedians, ultimately, the ultimate goal is like people just want to hang out with you for that hour. That's that's And in writing as well, having your personality come out. So you can get more of the education across if you've made them laugh. Uh-huh. And when you um, when you meet a new crowd that you're, uh, I, I guess, does the workshop follow immediately follow the stand up or is it? Uh... Sometimes it'll be first. I mean, often what we did this past year is on Friday night after Shabbat dinner at the synagogue, we do a workshop. And so that was their first in with us. Um, but that that you're, you know, you're making your first impression. Yeah. With so, that so... As opposed to the comedy. Yeah, so I'm curious how you do that. How is your connection with an audience a little bit different when you're being a comic versus when you're in, you know, speaker or educator mode? I actually think it's exactly the same. Uh, maybe there's not punchlines and setups, but you know, work, working a crowd, knowing how to relate to an audience—that's the key. And like, you know, good comedians—they know how to build that connection with the crowd. And if we think back on the best teachers we've had in our lives. It's not because they knew the most facts or had more information. It's because they were able to be interesting for those 40 minutes in high school or could make these stories feel relevant, even though they happened a long time ago or they're not related to our lives now. And so the, the Israel workshops that Benji and I do, that's what it's about, is how can these concepts, how can we be, how can we convey our personalities in a way that we're friends explaining this to you and sharing this experience with you as opposed to you know, educators coming in and hitting you over the head with uh, facts and figures and in maps. And so much of Jewish education, I think, has been has um, has strayed from this kind of path. And right. uh, like I think, yeah, and I think, and look, a lot of communities, too, if we're just going to be completely honest right now, uh, after October 7th, their first thought was to bring in, you know, speakers from the consulate, the Israeli consulate or other officials. And and uh, I I I feel it might be too strong to say that's a mistake, but I feel we should think of other options as well. That there, what we really need are people who can 
be good storytellers as opposed to just come in with the official badge and tell and say what we all know that they're going to say, the typical pro-Israel speech. So we need yeah. better storytellers in Jewish education in general. Right. I saw also you said that you um, you guys didn't want these these workshops to be just lectures and you wanted them to be more interactive. Oh, totally. Um, and you developed a, a game, some type yeah. of game. Tell me. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, look, I don't want to talk too much about it because we're developing it into an actual copywritten game that uh, would be sold because I think it's a great product for the Jewish world. But the idea is it's a game that uh, really gets people having conversations with each other, stimulating conversation. And anytime we've done a workshop, at the very beginning, I tell the group, like, this is not a lecture. It's, I do not want to be the only one talking here. I want you to hear from you as well. And it, it usually takes a while for the first hand to go up. But after that first person contributes, it's the dominoes tumbling. You know, people are more willing to uh, to talk. Um, and I think people are thankful for the for having a safe space where they can ask even the dumbest questions. A lot of times people will say, I think this is a really dumb question. But and then it turns out it's a really complicated question that um, maybe for too long we've assumed people took it for granted, but just never bothered to spend the time of you know, explaining why a certain thing might be. Yeah. So stand-up is, is not a lecture, even though it's only one person speaking, it's obviously totally. not a lecture. You know, it's it's the, 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 I think, I don't know if it was Seinfeld said, someone said that it's the laughs are their part of the conversation. It's totally, a, totally. It's a, it's a dialogue. Um, what would you, what advice would you have for, let's say, a rabbi who's who's giving up, uh, getting up there to give a, a sermon, um, and and he's not getting laughs. I mean, he's that's not his goal. He's he's not, you know, he may right. he may inject a joke in there or something like that. But how do you make something more of a dialogue as opposed to just a a monologue? Um, if you're not if you're not leaving that space in there for that interactivity through their laughs. Right. Well, look, pauses in silence are so underrated. Like just taking the time to slow down and allow for some pauses in your speech, um, acknowledging your own humanity. Like I think it's always a mistake to go up and just read a speech. Instead, acknowledge this, what went into making this speech. You know, even something like, as I was putting this, you know, half tour, or as I was putting this Dvar tour together, I was you know, I suddenly remembered back in high school how I struggled with the con like just showing your own humanity and sharing a little bit of your personality warms people up to you. So there are actually these little tricks and techniques you can do to connect with an audience. And then once you have them, they're much more willing to go with you for for the rest of it. Yeah. What but those two come to mind. What do you say about humor? Like, how would you advise a uh, like a someone to use humor? Should it be a canned joke? Should it be? It, it can be a number of things. If you are a, a person who's naturally able to be funny, and not everyone has that, and that's okay. But if then then finding humor at the appropriate time is a is a great idea. Um, you know, there's different types of humor. Self-deprecating humor, I think, in that kind of situation, works better than uh, you know putting someone else down, or for sure. But it can also just be it can be a canned joke. You know, starting off with saying like, uh, you know, this, my grandfather, when I was young, told me this joke, I've always loved it. Let me share it with you and tell the joke, get the laugh, and then explain why that joke is relevant to what you're going to talk about now. Um, you know, there's this story in the Talmud about the rabbi named the Rava, and it says the Rava would begin every lesson with a joke, and only then he would teach his students. And I think the Talmud was saying that humor has a way of opening people up to concepts and ideas 
that a mere lecturer cannot. So humor is powerful and I think should be used. Yeah. Um, what are some of your guidelines for how you use humor? Because we're living in a very triggered time and, you know, people are very um, skittish about, you know, what, what, what's said and people get very sensitive and offended. What, what kind of boundaries do you, do you make for yourself? I mean, for me, this is just like who I am as a person. Like I, you know, anything misogynist, racist, sexist, uh, you know, like that's just not who I am in real life. I never swear in real life. And, uh, well, maybe once in a while, but uh, you know, it's just, it's not like I have to change drastically. Uh, but at the same time, I think humor and sarcasm can be a great way to get a point across. There's a lot of shouting right now on social media and, if you can be clever and, and and find any little bit of humor in what you're trying to make your you know, as a way to help you make your point, I think it can make you stand out and and go a long way. But it's also in the, in a way it's harder than ever because people's attention spans are so short. And um, you know, I'm not native to social media. Like I, you know how old I am, and you're in the same age. I didn't grow up with it. Uh, I remember the principal at my kid's school said that there. Are, our kids are social media natives, but we're social media immigrants. You know, we have to learn it. And I was on a plane recently and saw the woman, the young woman next to me scrolling through videos. And I was amazed how like she would give each video less than a second. And if in that first second, it didn't grab her attention, like she was on to the next one. And it made yeah. me realize just how how much competition there is. And you, you know, if you want to use humor, like you, you can't take your time on social media. You kind of, kind of, you got to grab them at the beginning. So that's, that's something I'm still learning. That's a different art form. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What um what stand-up techniques do you think can be adapted for public speaking contexts? There's uh, a few. One, I mean, some very basic ones is check out the microphone beforehand. And if it's a corded mic, usually what the sound guy will do to supposedly help you out is he'll wrap the cord around the mic stand 30 times so that it won't go anywhere. But as a comedian or a speaker, you then have to unwind it in front of the crowd. So now like anyone, no matter how good a public speaker you are, can go and make sure that the cord is not wrapped around. You can make sure that the lighting is good, do a sound check. Um, I think as a speaker going slowly, the power of silence, like when you're, willing to be quiet on stage the audience thinks that you're really confident and they actually kind of lean forward to see what you're saying you're going to say next so that just train yourself to take a pause here and there um it, it communicates so much more about you even if it's not true you might be you know really scared inside but if you can take a pause on stage man the audience thinks that you're in control and and They'll go with you. So those are some of the techniques. Um, eye contact with you know certain audience members here and there, um, and you know w walking the stage. Anything with speed, I tend to stay away from. So walk slowly, take pauses, use your hands, but not too quickly, but in a more methodical gesture. Those things project uh, confidence and comfort that that. Uh, tell the audience, you, uh, you know, I'm worth listening to. Yeah. How do you manage, let, let's say a, uh, you have a tough act to follow, whether that act is uh, is funnier, you know, than you perceive yourself to be or, you know, or there's something that's uh, tragic or something like that, that. I mean, I can't tell you to how many Jewish events I've been to where right before I'm brought up, they say, 
And now here's a video about the recent terrorist attack or about um, you know helping cancer victims in our community. And then, hey, here's your comedian, Joel Chesnoff. And uh, it's, you gotta acknowledge it like that. I think acknowledge, not acknowledging is worse. So you usually acknowledging is the best way to go. Mm -hmm. Just Just call it out. Yeah, just to acknowledge how awkward it is to be doing comedy after all these people just spoke about their hospitalization or or whatever it is. Right, right. I think I once followed a uh, a documentary about the Kinder Transport or something like perfect, that. Perfect, perfect. Comedy gold. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I just have a couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, the next question I have is um, some of the uh, the best feedback that you've ever gotten uh, after after a show. Well, like well, I've mentioned before. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, like I've mentioned before, someone who said, I don't usually like comedians, but you actually made me laugh and I enjoyed it. Like, that's a huge piece of feedback. You know, if you really want to get emotional, there have been some people who've come up to me and said, you know, I haven't laughed in a number of years because of so-and-so tragedy in my family. And tonight was the first time like that. That reminds you of why you're doing this, that ultimately it's not about some of those prizes that you might crave when you're younger, like the TV show appearances and awards, but it's really about, can I, you know, in this world of ours, that's so chaotic and can often be so troubling and overwhelming, man, if you can make people happy, you know, happy for 30 minutes, what, what a gift, you know, that, that's why you do it. So though, that's the kind of feedback that, um, that really means the most to me. Yeah. And then the, uh, the, the flip side of that question is, is some of the times that you've been raked over the coals, some, some criticism, What's yeah, I mean, look, we've all had our bad shows, and anyone who says they haven't is lying. Um, I must say, the bad shows I've had in, you know, at the beginning, bad shows happen all the time. But since I got, let's say, good and any bad shows I've had, I really think it's because the environment was just absolutely off. You know, the people, a large group of people standing at the open bar talking when you've already been brought up on stage, like that's, you shouldn't have to fight them. Um, that's on the people running the event to make sure everyone is sitting down. Sometimes people are at an event with a comedian and they don't want, they don't want comedy. They came for the fundraiser. They want to get home. And now, Hey, we're throwing this other guy at you and uh, they don't necessarily, they're not expecting it or they don't want it like that. You know, you got to work a little harder and, and try to win them over. So for me, those are the challenges these days. Like I know which jokes work. I know which jokes still need to be worked on. But if the environment is off, that's when uh, you know I could struggle and need to pull out some of the other techniques I've I've developed. And as a uh, as someone who's gone through a bunch of these experiences, do you try to do you try to head them off before you get to the venue? Do, do you uh... look? I'll say no to things that I you know when you're beginning, you'll take any show because it's money and because you just want to be on stage. And now, you know, thank God I don't have to take everything. And so there are things I will actually flat out turn down. Um, but others, I'm going to be, you know, I'll talk with them and I'll really make sure we're curating the evening right. And I'll say, well, look, this can work, but only if the seating is like this and only if I'm not following this and only if you make sure the wait staff is not walking around clearing plates, you know, all the things I've learned over my career that you need to watch out for. And there's really no way to learn these things except to suffer through them. I remember I went, I had a Hanukkah gig. It was uh, the year before COVID and it was out in the middle of Wisconsin somewhere and I got there. Already sounds great. Oh, it was horrible. It, it, the audience didn't even speak English. They were all old Russian people. And they had no Excellent. idea what I was doing there. I was standing on like a wooden crate. And yeah. uh, the, the mics nice. didn't work. 
I had to, I had to let go of the mic. And one of my jokes, the punchline was uh, the, the word. The words were "thank you." It was about like using polite language in like kind of very sarcastic types of ways when someone says, "you know, thank you." You right. know. So I remember giving it my all because it was a really good joke. And then in the and I was like ten minutes in, and everyone just started clapping and got up to leave because they thought I, I was finished. They, that there's only English that was so there. good that must have been his closer. <laughs> No, because they they heard the words "thank you." They're like, "Oh, they, right, right, get right." You know? <laughs> yeah, I get oh, it. I'm like, "How do I recover from this?" I got I got 20 more minutes to go, and it was just it was it was That's funny. It was awful. But you remember it. See, those are the shows that stand out. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and not only that, but afterwards, a lady came over to me. One of the few English speaking people there came out. She came over to me. She goes, "I just want to tell you tonight, those jokes about your family were horrible. I was so offended." Mm, she goes, "Thank you." Ashamed of yourself. Thanks so and much. Like, Thanks for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my card. Right, right. Um, so uh, my last question for you is in terms of pers personal things. How much of yourself do you divulge in your act about, you know, who you are as a person? Uh, you know, how risky, how vulnerable do you make yourself? Right. Um, do you, is that part of your comedy? And Yeah, you know? I think quite a bit. Like, I don't, you know, in, in general, like, I don't talk about sexual things just in general or, uh, you know, other you know, like that's why one area I just don't really talk about. But in terms of vulnerability and fears, like I, that's the best. Like I've definitely more of that as I've, the longer I've done stand up, the more I've been willing to open up about those kinds of things. Uh, and the, the more the audience relates. I mean, the, I think we all kind of walk around with that fear of like, I'm the only one. And when you see someone else willing to be vulnerable, then, then you sympathize with them and you feel less alone. And, and as a comedian, that can be very powerful as a way to get people on board is just to show them your own weaknesses and talk about them and, you know, admit your infallibility. And that's, I'm all, I'm all for it. And I love, I love to do it. It feels good afterwards also. Yeah. Do you feel that there's a room for that in public speaking? Let's say, uh, let, let's say I you're, do. yeah. It depends what the topic is and what you've been brought in to talk about. But I think just about any area, look, if they're listening to a public speaker, they're there to learn something and get something out of it. So whatever, that means there's a hole somewhere that we're trying to fill. So whatever that hole is, you can acknowledge that own, you know, your own hole in yourself, whatever's missing and, and relate to that. Um, you know, people don't, I don't think people want speakers who come on and, and know it all. And we've all seen those speakers and they turn us off. Yeah. What would you say about, you know, someone who might might be a little bit uncomfortable thinking that, you know, this is a professional setting. Uh, maybe I shouldn't share part of myself as as part of this this talk. Um, you know, do, do you think that there's room for that or or I think there are limits. I think sharing yourself can be a little bit, a medium amount or a whole lot. And it depends on on what the setting is. But I would say share something because we endear our, we find ourselves endeared to speakers and writers who are revealing a little bit of themselves. Um, it feels good. It feels comforting. And it's just as a strategy, um, if you can reveal even something about yourself, you're going to win the audience over. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, so tell me, tell me where we can uh, get your book, where you're appearing, uh, have sure. people in you. It's all on the World Wide Web. I mean, look, the best one-stop shop is the website, joelchasnoff.com. Maybe in the show notes, you can put the actual link, but uh, J-O-E-L-C-H-A-S-N-O-F-F.com. 
and that has a page uh, with comedy clips. It has shows where you you know tour dates are listed, and you can uh, see where I'm going to be. Everything about all my books uh, is there as well. And look, also social media, which I've gotten more into because I have a great team behind me in Israel of these uh, young women who know what they're doing. Because I certainly did not before I started, uh, and that would be like on Instagram at Joel Chasnoff, and same on Facebook. Got oh, it. and I've got a new podcast. Can I mention that? Yeah. Yeah, it's called Inside Israel with Joel Chasnoff. Since October 7th, I started a podcast where the idea is to show people how the news is actually affecting Israelis. So it's not just regurgitating the headlines, but it's saying, okay, how is this actually changing the lives of Israelis who live in Israel right now? And uh, I actually do it live every week on Zoom before a live audience and then take the recording and post it as a podcast. You can find that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And the links to the live recordings are on the website as well, just in the newsletter that you can sign up for. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'd love to listen to that. And, yeah, awesome. uh, and what is, what's like the ideal show for you? If someone wanted to book you, what would be, you know, what's your ideal show? What, where do you perform best? Under what? Yeah, I would say like a, the, the, I love all kinds, but the ideal sweet spot would be a Jewish audience that cares about Judaism. So that, that, you know, I think pretty much sums it up. So not just a collection of Jews who happen to be in the same place, but uh, we're here because we all belong to the synagogue or we all support this camp or we all give to this organization. You know, there's a little bit of meaning behind their attachment to Judaism as well. Okay, fantastic. All right, we'll yeah. be in touch, Joel. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, cool. Daniel. Okay, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to The Magid Method, and I'm Daniel Steinberg. There's a secret that great public speakers know. Did you know there's a method for cutting straight through to an audience's heart, grabbing their attention and holding it, and making a memorable impact with your presentation? The best speakers in the world utilize it, and now you can too, every time you get up to speak. Download your free Magid Method of Public Speaking template at magidmethod.com, M-A-G-G-I-D-M-E-T-H-O-D.com. The Magid Method will teach you how to find your authentic voice, craft meaningful presentations, manage people's attention, and build unbreakable bonds with your audience. Go to magidmethod.com and download your free copy now. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.